Our scripture reading this evening is John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. That can be found on page 1154. We will also be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7. That's found on page 208 in your Forms and Prayers book. We will read first from Lord's Day 7. This will set the context of John 20 and what takes place there, highlighting Thomas's words. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Dear Father, we come before you at this moment to to pause and to take a breath, to contemplate what we are doing currently, what we have been doing in this service, and what we turn to do now to understand your word, to understand the words of life. We thank you that we have heard these words that we are not those who come to hear them for the first time, but rather those who can weekly attend and hear the words of salvation, that we would pray we would never stray in our step, and that as we discuss this evening faith, that you would continue to nourish and foster within us true faith, and within those who have or may not have placed their faith in you, that you would work in your word, Holy Spirit, the life of faith, for we know that you produce it, and we ask that we would see this here. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord's Day 7. Are all people then saved through Christ, just as they were lost through Adam? No, only those are saved who, through true faith, are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. What are these articles? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now we will turn to our scripture reading, John 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ascends the reading of God's word. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The words of Thomas, as we have called him Doubting Thomas, the one who doubted, the disciple who wasn't there, and yet on one hand we think, could we blame him? And we say that because we are so weak ourselves on the one hand. We are those who could understand this. We are those who at times do ourselves long for the fulfillment. We long to see, we long to place our hands on the reality, but we don't have that capacity, we don't have that privilege. We are in the time of faith. We are in the time of faith. You see, the gospel might appear and at times seem to be tricky, the tricky part of it is that to the, the unknowing observer, it might look that what the gospel is is a, a grand argument, a grand series of steps, a way to present a bunch of facts and eyewitness accounts and then through this to produce faith, to convince someone of eternal life. And if you're about it in that way, if the, if the goal is to appeal to their minds and senses and convince them to believe, we understand Thomas's reaction. We understand that we need that evidence. We need to see it. And yet the words of Jesus stand out. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus' words apply to all of us here now. But he would say, blessed are you, blessed are you who believe who have not seen, for you have exercised faith, you have exercised faith in what can't be seen, and assurance in a thing that is hoped for and looked for, but what isn't seen, a conviction nonetheless, though, that holds your belief, that is your faith. If we were to just pause and think, faith is astonishing, belief is astonishing. The fact that we hold these things, 
The fact that we believe them in such a strong way, and that isn't to proclaim ourselves as great, it's not to proclaim our faith in our strength as that strong, it's to extol the work of God. It's to extol the fact that, if I could say it that way, we've bet it all on Christ. We've placed it all on Him. Our whole life we put in His hands. And a man we've never seen, in a side that was pierced by a spear, but that we didn't see or touch, in hands and wrists that were nailed to a cross, yet we didn't see it, we didn't hear the cries, we didn't see the blood, nor did we touch the scars. And yet a conviction, a sure conviction, we hold as truth. That we believe we are saved in him. It's amazing, and it's to the praise of our Lord, it's to the praise of the Holy Spirit who produces it. We are those who, by God's grace, do believe, those who have faith. But that's what this catechism question and answers, these, this Lord's Day is on. Well, what is this? What is this faith? What is this thing that we believe? And it's vitally important, very similar to the, the, the sermon we heard this morning from John the Baptist. It was coming at a different angle. He was coming at it from the, the idea of repentance, but that's an aspect of faith. Here we look at the particulars of what faith is, and it's of extreme importance that we know. Would we be able to answer that question, what is faith? There was a practice in, uh, in years ago, I don't know if it still continues, to memorize the Heidelberg Catechism, to memorize questions and answers. That is a wonderful practice. And parents, I would call you to do the same in your home. And this is one that you would definitely put on the list to understand and define what is faith. What is it that we do and believe? The particulars of these things. We place our life in Christ's hands and we see that the work of the Holy Spirit is amazing. Here's why. Me saying... That you bet it all on Christ. That it's all on him. That your eternal destiny, all of what is to come, without end, you place on a man you have never seen. And that, me saying that, does not make us squirm. Does not make us rethink our faith. That is through the grace of God. That we could hold something so strongly and so firmly. Yes, we doubt at times. But an assurance is a part of what is true faith. An assurance that we know that he rose again. That he ascended and that he sits at God's right hand. Everything we confess and profess in the Apostles' Creed. We know it to be true. And it isn't something we doubt. And it isn't something that's going to fail us. We know it. And believe That is what we talk about here tonight, that true faith occurs through the Spirit's use of the gospel, that he produces this knowledge and wholehearted trust in Christ alone, that it is the Holy Spirit that does this and enables us to do it. And we see that the Catechism continues its logical flow as it's working through these questions, and we come to question and answer 20. And this makes sense. Question and answer 20. Are all people then saved through Christ, just as they were lost through Adam? This is a question of covenant heads. As Adam was the covenant head in which all fell, does that mean then is Christ the covenant head in which all are saved, in which all will find themselves in eternity? And the answer to that question is very important. It's a yes or no question. 
If it were indeed yes, what would we see? We'd have universalism. We'd have everyone will be saved. Everyone will find themselves in eternity and in heaven. And thus the catechism would have been a very short, very very short and brief explanation of something that ultimately really didn't matter. But of course, we know that that's not what the catechism says. The answer is no. Not all men will be saved through Christ. And that's where faith comes in because that's, that's the hinge. That's the answer. It is then through faith that you grasp Christ, the covenant head, the federal head, he who we need. But is Adam's headship then greater? That's a question that comes out of it. If all fell through Adam, why aren't all saved through Christ? Is this sort of a bit of diminishing returns? That Christ doesn't bring all back? Is that less of a work? The answer is, of course not. We need to be clear the merit of Christ's obedience is enough to save all. You see, universalism, that's the belief that all eventually will be saved. That's not wrong in the sense of that Christ could do it with the merit of what he did. It's not that his sacrifice is lacking. It would be enough to cover all the sins ever committed. His, his, what he achieved is that great. But yet it's not applied to all. And even that, though seems to pit Christ against Adam. Well, who, was, who had more influence of this headship? Well, the, the grandness of what Christ is as a head is seen in his grace that is greater than sin. His grace is greater than sin regarding satisfaction, though not in application. What do we mean by that? We mean what he did in satisfying the wrath of God is a far more profound work and far more grand than what Adam did in failing. You see, what Adam did is he took all those he represented and all those who had come from him and he fell and they all fell through him. Christ not only brings us back to the point where Adam was and then extends us all the way up to God himself. So he surpassed Adam in that sense of his work. But he also did what was far more difficult to come to a people who were dead in sin and bring them to life. You see, what Christ did doesn't make him less than, it makes him greater and more grand, even if all are not saved. And that's what the the Catechism says. The power and ability of the satisfaction of Christ isn't determined by the numbers who believe, but by the magnitude of the benefit. And that's where you see how great the work of Christ is. Taking us poor, lowly, worthless creatures and making us sons of God. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the power of Christ and what he's done as a covenant head. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What Christ does is bring us away from the wrath of God into newness of life. And this is, as the Catechism says in that answer, grafting into Christ. Grafting into Christ. What is that? Well, the imagery here is of, uh, of plants. And it's of a branch that you lop off from another existing plant. And when you do that, that plant is dead. There's no, there's no capacity for that cut limb to grow. It's cut from the nourishment of the plant and from the roots and the vine. It cannot survive on its own. And this is, this is those who we are. We are cut off branches. We're dead. And what happens in Christ is, as we know in that plant 
We've seen grafting and pictures where they cut that slice in it and they put it in there and they wrap it around and the plant now, the branch that was cut, is, is joined to this plant and it grows and blossoms and nourishes. This is what we are in Christ. We are those placed there, grafted there to bear the fruit of Christ, to receive the nourishment and life of Christ. But that grafting, how that grafting takes place, is through faith. But you'll notice that the Catechism says there, who through true faith, who through true faith are grafted into Christ. This means that there is faith that isn't true. And this is important for us to go through. Why? Why is it important to look at false faiths? Well, the obvious answer is so we can avoid that. But there's more benefit just than that itself. We are going to encounter these false faiths. And many times we will be shocked by those who have what wasn't a true faith, but a false faith, and we can think, well, how? how? How could they have done what they did and yet not truly believe? And we should be aware of what false faiths are. Not all are true. Not all faith is the true faith. We see this in the Lord's teaching in Mark 4 in the parable of the sower. And we see what happens to all these seeds. One type of faith is only temporary. Another is fair-weathered. Another is weak and immature. It's lacking. It's not fully what it ought to be. And in fact, in God's word, we're given several examples of false faith. The first example is a historical faith. A historical faith is a belief in the historicity of what has happened and what has taken place. God's word gives us that example with the demons in James 2 who believe, they believe these things have happened. They know that they have happened. They don't doubt it. And so there are those who can have historical faith and not true saving faith. They can believe that Christ did come and that he did die. They could even believe that he rose again. The demons do and shudder. And yet that's not true saving faith. So historical faith. There's also a temporary faith. Temporary faith. This is an assent to the doctrines of the church and it could be accompanied with a profession and joy. It's difficult to ascertain to us who, who see it. We think, oh, this, this is true faith. They're very jo- filled with joy. They can be on fire even for the gospel, it would seem, and yet it doesn't last. It's temporary. It endures only for a time. And in seasons of affliction, it dies away. It isn't a true faith. And we see this. We see those who seem to embrace it but have not yet fully leaned in, have not fully placed their trust in it. It served them for a time, but was temporary. We also see in God's word the faith of miracles. This is an interesting one. Those who have faith, those who even believe in the supernatural works of God, those who may even perform miracles and yet don't have true faith. We see these examples in Acts 19.14. There are the seven sons of Sceva who try to cast out demons They don't have true faith, they aren't true believers, and yet they believe that God is real, and they believe that by the power of God they should be able to cast out a demon. In Acts 9, we see Simon the magician, who saw the Holy Spirit fall upon new believers, saw what happened, and he goes to the apostles and he says, let me have that, what what do I need to pay you to teach me to do the same? He believed in the Holy Spirit and the power, he wanted that power for himself. A false faith even though one could believe in these miracles. In Matthew 7, 22, 
We read what this type of faith is. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's important to know that faith can be historical, it can be temporary, it can believe in miracles and yet not be true. And then the last faith is actually justifying faith, is true faith. And that's where we turn in question and answer 21. What is true faith? Here, this answer is very helpful. It says, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. So here we come to the answer, and I want to dissect that briefly. So look at this question and answer. In question and answer to what is true faith? Not, true faith is not only a sure knowledge. All right, there we get the first ingredient of faith, knowledge. And it's a knowledge by which I hold as true. There's the second ingredient, assent. We see there knowledge and assent, a knowledge that understands, that is aware of the issues, that is aware of the gospel and the promises, aware, is aware of the sin, salvation, and service of the gospel. That's the knowledge. And then an assent, you hold it as true, you believe it. You don't just know it in your mind, you believe it. And then it continues, all that God has revealed to us in his word. So there's the parameters of what we believe. There's the knowledge that we hold to, all that God has revealed in his word. It's defining what the knowledge is. And then it is also a wholehearted trust. There's the third and final ingredient to what is true faith. Knowledge, assent, and wholehearted trust. And then we see how this happened. It's worked in us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And then what is it? What does it produce? Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. And that last sentence gives us where the origination of the possibility, the origination of the merit, the origination of how we are forgiven. It's Christ's merit applied to us. I'm going to go through each of those in a bit more detail, rather briefly, but just a bit more detail. So first, knowledge. Knowledge is very important. We don't believe in some sort of implicit faith. That someone can believe for you, or that God will just save you. Nor do we believe that there's more than one way, or more than one God, or more than one religion. This all takes understanding. Now it takes an understanding appropriate to the position and age of the one who believes. I say that because it doesn't mean that all will have the same understanding and the same level of understanding, but it is the appropriateness of the faith to the age and capacity of the one who has it. You see, a, a very young child can have true faith without, un, without understanding all aspects of God's word, and yet they profess a faith that is appropriate to their capacities, to their understanding. You see, the knowledge there is necessary. We're not saying that everyone has to understand all. Everyone must understand every little detail. You understand the gospel. You understand the central truth that you're, you're a sinner. 
and that you need the Savior Christ. That's the the center of the gospel, but it takes that knowledge and understanding. That's why we have creeds, that's why we have confessions, that we would properly understand this knowledge. It's vital and it's important. The second is the wholehearted trust. The wholehearted trust. It's one thing to know the truth, it's another thing to place your trust in it. This is the, the final end goal of it. In knowledge, assent, and trust, the trust is the most important piece. If you were going to go, I don't know, I, let's say bungee jumping, okay, something like that. If you were going to go do something that required a harness, maybe I should just say it more generally like that. It's one thing to say, I believe the harness would hold me. You could say that and you could believe it. It is a whole other thing to place your weight in the harness. It's a whole other thing to trust your life and the thing that's going to hold you. And that's where the wholehearted trust comes in. Are we, and do we, place our faith in Christ so much so that it isn't just a, a belief, it's a trust. We've placed ourselves on him, or more correctly stated, the Holy Spirit has done that, and we profess that faith. We are on his back, and we know he'll bear us. It's not on us. That's the, the wholehearted trust. That's the key ingredient. It's the crown of it all. Apart from this, faith is sterile and useless, and one of the false faiths. It takes that wholehearted trust. We see third, that true faith is the Holy Spirit's work. And this is where the humility element comes in. True faith must be humble faith. It declares that the author of our faith is the Holy Spirit. We don't come to that conclusion on our own. We don't do it or even aid in that process. The Holy Spirit works it, and he does so in such a way that we are active responders to all that he does. I say active responders because we don't originate it. It isn't our doing. But all along the way, he pulls us, he guides us, he draws us, he heals us, he makes us new, and we respond in faith as we're doing that, as the Holy Spirit's doing that. Fourth, true faith comes through the Spirit's use of the gospel. True faith comes through the Spirit's use of the gospel. The Bible is clear that faith comes through the word of God. This is a very common text. We read it often, Romans 10. Romans 10, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes through preaching. Faith comes through that, that the Holy Spirit uses and works in us. Faith, and, it, and it's especially preaching. Now, we'll talk about the importance of devotions in just a minute. But devotions are no stand-in for preaching. Devotions, as needed and as necessary as they are, and as the Holy Spirit can still use that to produce and nourish faith, does not take the place of preaching. That is the means of grace that God has ordained to strengthen and produce faith. That is the missionary endeavor of the church. That is the great commission to send preachers to go out and make disciples to preach God's word. And it is through the preaching that we find our own strength nourished. This is also is, is at the center of what the elders did a while ago. It was a little while ago that they sent a letter about worship and about how to worship appropriately. And as well as to, to do all that you could to remain and understand and be attentive and not distract from it. Well, why? 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 Why the emphasis on that? Well, it's, it's this. 
It's that we hear, even as we sit, as we are engaged in worship, as we hear the preaching, this is the means God uses to strengthen faith, and, and this is God who speaks to us when properly explained, when properly taught, when properly applied. So we hear God's word, we hear the preaching, it strengthens our faith, and, and we, we want to be mindful that we wouldn't just depart from that. That we would have good reasons, and there are certainly reasons why, but we understand the importance. We understand the importance of, of preaching and the strength of faith and hearing God's word. These are the words of life. These are what the Holy Spirit uses to produce faith. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, and it's worked through the Holy Spirit. And fifth, true faith connects us to Christ's merit. That is what saves us. Faith is not the act that saves. Faith is God's gift to his people as the means by which we are joined and plugged into the one who is the one who saves. This is grafting. You see, grafting isn't what saves the branch. It's the the vine to which it's joined. It's the roots of that vine producing that nourishment to that branch, and that branch now has life because it's attached to the vine. Christ is the vine. Faith is the grafting. Faith is the means God uses to plug us in to Christ and salvation. There is also a maturity of faith. I want to read a portion from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14.3. This is helpful. Talking about true justifying faith, this faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. There is maturity in faith. Remember Christ said to his disciples when they were doubting and full of anxiety, you have little faith. There are those who have little faith, there are those who have a lesser faith, there are those who have maturity of faith, and the goal is that we would grow up into the maturity of faith. Hence, that means grace, and preaching, and sacraments, and also devotions. That we are in God's word. It ought to bother you if you're lackadaisical about your faith. It ought to bother us if we're lackadaisical about our devotion life. We understand that times may be difficult, but that's not a legitimization. We seek always to see the maturity of our faith, to see us trust in the Lord with a greater assurance, a greater wholehearted trust. How dare we think of our devotion life and not care about it or neglect it, and year by year just say, yeah, we're not not doing well with that. And we should hear shame on us. We don't, we don't do something. We don't seek the Lord. Remember, James said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. That is what God says. True faith, true faith is one that should grow and mature and should see us go through difficulties. Now, I like the way the Westminster said it. That doesn't mean that at times our faith doesn't go through degrees of weakness or strength. We all go through those, and we all go through times of doubt, and we all go through times of weakness. We all go through times where we think, do we truly believe 
It happens to all, but, but in God's grace, we, we respond to the preaching of his word and to reading his word and to the gospel and uh, find ourselves again in times of assurance and knowing our wholehearted trust in God. This is faith. Now, we won't be spending time on question and answers 22 and 23. We'll deal with that. The, the Heidelberg Catechism now goes through and explains what is our profession of faith, explains that knowledge. We'll leave that to a later time. But we see there, given to us in summary, of what it is we do believe and hold. These historical facts, these things that happen in which hold our faith. is a tremendous blessing to, to know this. It's a tremendous blessing to read God's word and to hear that in Thomas we see the doubting, and yet even there we saw Christ's grace. Even to doubting Thomas, he didn't leave him, he didn't ignore him. He came to him and said, put your hands here, touch, believe. And then he references all the saints, blessed are those who will not see, who will not touch, and yet believe. We praise the Holy Spirit, we praise our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise our Father in heaven who has ordained all this to take place, for Christ to achieve the merit, and for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and produce life itself. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the faith that you produce for what you do through your Son and through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you and praise your name. We ask that you would increase our faith, that those of us who are going through times of degrees of weakness or doubt or struggle, you would uphold and cause their faith to mature and to endure. And we pray that you would be with us even on a day-in and day-out walk, that we would draw near to you, that you would produce a greater and stronger faith even as we seek you. We ask this in Christ's name.